0: This is the Austin Life Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. How are we? Good? Okay, that was was a little lackluster, Um, but maybe we're not good. That's all right, too. Uh, That's fine. Um, I I love that when service started, like the back rows were empty. I don't know how that happened. It never happens. Um, It was like filled up to the front first that was beautiful um let's let's do that again next time i also love that the back of this gluten free sign just says glute um and so <laughs> it's like awesome awesome we didn't uh we didn't get it up we didn't fit free and we just have glute on the back of the sign so uh that's good That was good um so takoya and michael uh read from genesis 2 and ephesians 5 so if you uh if you want to keep that marked, we're also going to spend some time in Matthew 19 uh, today, as we, we talk about God's design for, for marriage. Um, Thirty thousand dollars is the average cost per wedding in America in 2022. I don't know how accurate that is, like, but they got to get numbers from somewhere. Um, Thirty thousand dollars, like, Lord have mercy on those families with multiple daughters like ours. So that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot of money. Um, people dream for the most part of, of getting married one day. Most people um, have aspirations for that. They dream about their wedding um, since, since the time they were kids, right? Um, and statistically, most do end up getting married at some point. Uh, marriage is a big deal to most people. I, I don't. I've not met anybody personally, nor do I really know of anyone that's kind of like, ah, oh, you know, it's whatever. We're just doing a thing. We'll see how it works. Like most people go into marriage with like uh, the plan on it sticking and, and lasting and living happily ever after. It's a big deal. It costs too much dadgum money to not be a big deal, right? Like you don't, you don't throw that kind of money around just for some like party, right? You know, do something else, right? So ma- marriage is a, is a big deal. And yet still in America, almost 50% end in divorce. And it said that 73% of those cite lack of commitment. One or both were just no longer committed to this, to this person. And so you gotta ask, right, if marriage is such a big deal, like, but is it really? Like, How do we really view marriage? What do we really think about marriage? How important is it to us? Um, but, but a better question, and the question we're really asking, is how important is marriage to God? What does God say about marriage? marriage, right? If if we're here, and and whether you agree or not, like our perspective, our approach is to look at the scripture, to look at the Bible, and to ask God, what is his design for marriage? In Genesis 2, when he created it, what was his intention? What was his purpose? What does he want for our marriages today? And so in addition to, as I said, in addition to Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, we're going to also be in Matthew 19, and that's where we're going to start, is Matthew 19 asking the question, God, what is your design? Now, if you're not married, um, if you're single, and you may be thinking like, okay, um, this has nothing to do with me. Well, you know, we did have a, a singleness sermon, and we told the married people to stick around, so, you know, let's, let's match that. But, but for real, though, you, you do matter to the lives of marriages, Right? Marriage is not meant to be something that that a husband and wife go off and live on their own. Like we're meant to do this in community. If you're single, you have a role in the marriage of people around you thriving. You have a you have a part to play in them. They they need you. Our marriages need what you bring to the table. Right? Just like as a single person, you, you need you need our marriages, right? We we need one another. It's not one better than the other. We all need each other to be all that God created us to be. Right. And so whether you're you're married or single, it, it matters for us to know what God's design is. But but if you are single and you hope to one day be married, well, this matters. It matters to know if we want to submit to God's word, it matters to know. Like, okay, what, what is he thinking here? What's his design for marriage? So let's start in Matthew 19. Starting in verse three. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we want to ask the question first, How how do, how do people today, how do we view marriage as a culture? But let's go backwards even and ask, okay, how did, how did they view marriage, right? What, what, did, what did people, um, when, when Jesus was here, how did they view marriage? How did people in the Old Testament view marriage? The, the first question that the Pharisees ask kind of gives you a clue as to what they, they thought about marriage. You know, they're asking, hey, Jesus, is it okay to, divide, to divorce one's wife for, for any cause, Right, and we have to remember, this is a patriarchal society, right? So in this time, it was really only men divorcing wives, although today now, um, right, there, there's, it's, it's equal. Men and women um, have the freedom and to divorce equally, right? It's not just men, but in this context, right, it's a patriarchal society, and they're asking, hey, Jesus, is it okay for any reason? Like, for any reason that we see fit to divorce our wives. Um, then in Matthew 19 and, and in the years prior, so many, even within the faith community, looked at marriage as a, a consumeristic contract. It was an agreement between two people to, to really find one's own self-gratification within this marriage. Right? People approached marriage with a, I'm going to be happy with this person. This person's going to please me and meet my needs and, and serve me. And, but, but if that kind of contractual agreement, if that consumeristic thought breaks down and it's no longer meeting one another's needs, no longer satisfying me, then in this context, a, a man could claim indecency, write a certificate of divorce, and, and move on. And so the the Jews here are looking back to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And they're they're asking their question of Jesus coming from what Moses said here. Moses says in, in Deuteronomy 24, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out right we don't so they're they're going back to this and they're saying hey moses commanded divorce and jesus is like time out time out no, no. moses never commanded divorce Moses conceded to divorce. He allowed divorce to happen. It was never a command of Moses. And and, and then not only that, they're asking the question, is it okay to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're, They're omitting the fact that Moses referenced in Deuteronomy chapter 24, indecency, which the Hebrew word means some sexual form of indecency. And they're just omitting that, and they're taking indecency to mean really anything that they find displeasure with. And they're saying, hey, Moses allowed divorce for, for any reason. Is that is that okay, Jesus? Do you, do you agree with that? Can we divorce our wives for any indecency? You know, whatever indecency means to each person. Is, is that gonna be okay, Jesus? And and Jesus says, He's like, guys, no, 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 Moses. No, he allowed, he conceded to it because of your hard and selfish hearts. Right, that's what Jesus says. Moses allowed it to happen because you're stubborn and selfish and you want from someone what, what pleases and serves you. And Moses knew how prideful and selfish you were. And so he allowed it to occur. But it was never, it was never God's plan. It's not how God designed it from the beginning. What, what Moses allowed and what was allowed and, and conceded to throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament w- was that people seemed to approach marriage as a consumer. That, that was so much of the heart behind marriage, is okay, I'm going to enter into this to get from my spouse what makes me happy, my wildest dreams, I'm going to live happily ever after, I'm gonna have my soulmate, my partner, the person that makes me feel amazing, that's what I'm going to have in my marriage. And what Moses knew and what Jesus knew is that if that's the approach of a consumer, it will never work out. And so if, if that's what people are thinking, well then yeah divorce is going to happen because at some point when you're walking in the pasture of this green grass you look down and you're like well there's some poop in this pasture (laughs) right this one's no longer making me happy jesus is it okay for us to move on and try to find greener pasture somewhere else this is, this, is not, this is not serving my needs. This is not only not making me happy, this is kind of miserable right now. Jesus, is it okay for me to move on and, and, and find a happier environment, greener pastures? That, that's what was happening in, you might have thought I was talking about today, right? Because not much has changed. Not much has changed. We, we approach today so often our marriages with the perspective of what can I get from my spouse? Not necessarily what can I give to my spouse. We approach today so much from a consumeristic contract. Right Here's the rules of engagement and as long as these things are happening, then we're okay. But if we violate the contract, we take off. We go and do our own things. I'll reference a lot today from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, which, um, in my opinion, might be the best book I've ever read on marriage. Um, So again, Tim Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. And he wrote, "...both men and women today want a marriage in which they can receive emotional and sexual satisfaction from someone who will simply let them be themselves." They want a spouse who is fun, intellectually stimulating, sexually attractive, with many common interests, and who, on top of it all, is supportive of their personal goals and the way they are living now. He says that today our culture and the world approaches marriage looking for this ideal soulmate person. The one. This is the one for me. And the problem, Keller writes, and the problem that if we stop and think about it, is that that person does not exist for anyone. There is no such thing as the ideal person who will forever satisfy and meet our needs because that person would have to never, ever, 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 ever change. Or if they change, they change along with our changes. Of, of prep, that they would not be allowed to be their own person. Keller quotes Duke University professor Stanley Hauerwas, who said, We always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. The primary problem in marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. See, we approach a marriage uh, as consumers of, of a, a, an agreement, a relationship that will serve and meet our needs, and the problem is even if we stand up and we share vows with the perfect person, the ideal person, our soulmate, that person will no longer exist in three months, six months, two years, five years, ten years. And if we're looking for someone that will meet our consumeristic desires, that will change time and time and time and time again because people change. There's personality traits within us that we don't even know exist until new circumstances enter our lives and force those personality traits up. Right, I I didn't know how selfish I was until someone else was expecting things from me that I didn't like. I really didn't know how selfish I was until I had children that gave me nothing and took everything. Come on, preach, right? And then we added four of them. You know? So there's things within you that you don't even know are personality traits of you that don't surface until there's new circumstances put into the mixture. And so if we are coming to marriage as a consumeristic contract, what what am I going to get from this person? They're going to please me and satisfy me. That will fail every single time. It's impossible for another human being to live up to those standards. Literally impossible. And so the Pharisees, they're saying, yeah, we know that. So Jesus, is it okay to divorce my, my spouse for any reason? Now, I, I won't even answer what God says yet. I'll just tell you practically, if that is our approach, we will never find the greener pasture. Because like I said, we're gonna get married and then we're gonna notice there's poop in that pasture and then we're gonna go look for a greener field and guess what? Poop in that pasture too, gummit. It may look good at first. It may be maybe you're like, man, this is greener fields. But the day is coming when that human being who cannot be perfect lets you down. And that day is coming when that human being who cannot be perfect lets you down in ways you never thought possible. And so if our marriage is a consumeristic contract, they'll never last. They'll never make it. But that's the approach that Jesus is dealing with. Good news is that's not God's design. Good news is our marriages, they, they can thrive. That God can actually use those messy parts of our marriage to make our marriage better. Better. That's the good news that we have with God. So so what is God's design in marriage? What what does Jesus say? So if you look back at Ephesians 5, right, starting in verse 21, Paul begins his, his, the most famous passage that Paul has on marriage, Ephesians 5, he begins actually in verse 21. And he says, "'Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord.'" For the husband is the head, so on, so on, so on, right? We, a, lo- a lot of times, the, the you know, gender equality wants to look at it and go, wives submit to your husbands, like that's so oppressive, that's so misogynistic. What I don't like in the English translation is that it doesn't communicate the Greek well. The, verse 22 in the Greek is not its own sentence. It, it's actually a continuation of verse 21, The word that we read in verse twenty-two, Sarah. Throw up verse twenty-two. The word that we read there, where it says "submit." That word "submit" is not even in the Greek. It actually reads. Go back to twenty-one, Sarah, and then go straight into twenty-two. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the land, as to the Lord. Right. So, and then it. So it's it's. This is a a marriage passage on wives and husbands submitting to one another in various ways. Wives and husbands, the word to submit means to intentionally rank another higher than yourself. Right? It, it means to look at someone and prioritize them higher than yourself. It means to intentionally prefer their desires and wants and well-being over your own. Now, we may be thinking like, well, shoot, that sounds like I'm going to get trampled on. Well, A, the promise of God is that he's enough to fill what anyone else lacks for us. But then B, if we enter into a marriage of, of two men and women both seeking to honor the Lord, guess what? Our spouse is seeking to do the same for us. Right? So, so God's, God's thought about this. He's designed this in a way where, A, he will give us everything we need regardless of what our spouse does or does not do, and B, if both of us are pursuing the Lord, we're both seeking to submit to the other. Paul says, submit to one another. Humble yourself before your spouse. Husbands, future husbands, submit to your wife. Wives, future wives, submit to your husbands. Paul is saying to the husbands here to to prefer and tend to your wife's needs, to her pleasures, to her desires, to her dreams over your own. Learn her love language. Learn what makes her feel seen and heard and cherished and then guess what? Do it. It's One thing to learn it. It's another thing to get over yourself and do it. Submit to one another. Husbands, for the rest of your life, prefer your wife over yourself. Wives, you know where we're going. Prefer, tend to your husband's desires and pleasures and dreams and well-being over your own. Learn his love language. Learn learn what makes him feel like the man. Learn what makes him feel seen and cherished and protected. And guess what? Do it. Apply it to your marriage. This is what Paul is saying. Husbands, wives, submitting to one another. Now, why do we do this? right, Stephanie, why are you going to submit to me? Because I'm the best husband? I mean sure now why why am why am i going to submit to 70 why am i going to why am i going to prefer why am i going to rub her feet right right because because i i get something out of that i mean other than tired hands you know no we, do we do we submit to one another be, because they are living up to their side of the contract Do we submit to one another because they're not difficult and whiny and annoying? Do we submit to them because they're not grumpy? Do we submit to them because they're putting out like we desire? Do we submit to them because they're meeting their side of it? No, Paul says submit to one another, why? Out of reverence for Christ. We we choose to humble ourselves to our spouse as an act of worship to God. That means it doesn't matter what our spouse does or does not do because we can worship God regardless. We can honor God in the way that we submit to our spouse regardless. That is how we are to approach our marriage. The word reverence means a fear and awe. We are to have such an awe of Jesus and the love that he has for us are to be so filled by his presence and his power that we willingly and joyfully submit to our spouse the, the only power and, and ability to be able to do this because let's be honest let's, uh, quick quick show of hands who's married okay so that's probably about half the room okay I'm, I'm thinking RJ and Haley y'all might be the, the most recent what are we three weeks ish something like that In the time you've been married, I'm putting you on the spot here, we didn't prep this. In the time that you've been married, and let's just say dating engaged, have there been any moments where it's been challenging perhaps to prefer the other? What? (laughs) I know, shocker, right? Like, I don't even have to run, like we all know that. This is is not, man, our, our pride, come on, let's talk about it. Our pride runs deep. Like deep. Our selfish ambition, our desire to get from rather than get to, come on, y'all. That runs deep. The only way we will be able to do what we're commanded to do here is if we have an ulterior motive, which is to honor God. Because our spouse will not live up to it, they will not be the prime candidates that are worthy of all of our humility and submitting to. But if it's to revere and honor Christ, now we can do it. Stephanie and I read this uh, devotional. Um, It's, here, let me grab it. You gonna throw it to me? Give it a toss, you got it. Okay, cool. Uh, Devotions for a Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. If you're married, I'd recommend you grab this. 52 devotions. Um, Read it together out loud. Um, just take your time, or take your turns, or whatever. You can do one a week. Um, so, so we've read this before. I've, I've given it to several people. It's one of my favorite resources. They're short and practical. And the first one, uh, Gary titles, The God-Centered Spouse. And he, he pulls from, um, really he pulls from 2 Corinthians 7, but it's the same, con- you know, same words, out of reverence for God. And he says, A spouse-centered, or a self-centered wife, acts nicely toward her husband when he acts nicely toward her. She is accommodating as long as her husband pays her attention. A spouse self-centered husband will go out of his way for his wife as long as she remains agreeable and affectionate. He'll romance her as long as he feels rewarded for doing so. But a God-centered spouse feels more motivated by his or her commitment to God than by whatever response a spouse may give. Can I, can I re-say that? A God-centered spouse feels more motivated by his or her commitment to God than by whatever response a spouse may give. Every decision I make, every word I utter, every thought I think, every movement I perform is to flow out of one holy motivation, reverence for God. That's a wildly different approach to marriage than a consumeristic contract. That's a different approach than... I'm I'm, I'm in as long as I'm getting from you what I expect to get from you. This says, I'm in to honor God regardless of you. Now, if if we can do this, awesome. But I'm in to honor God regardless. The second thing we see both Paul and Jesus reference is that God's design for marriage is not meant to be a consumeristic contract, but a lifelong covenant of pursuing oneness. So if we go back to Matthew 19, Jesus says, he says, have you not read, so when he's answering their question, you know, hey, can we divorce for any reason? Jesus' answer goes back to Genesis 2. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So when they're asking the question, hey, can we approach this marriage as a consumeristic contract? Jesus says, no, no, don't don't you remember what God said in the very beginning? This is not a consumeristic contract. It is a covenant, a lifelong promise made between man and woman to no longer be two, but be one. The word covenant is is a promise. It's a commitment. There's no longer, hey, I wanna live this way. No, 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 but I wanna live that way. Hey, this is mine. Okay, that's yours. No, it's, this is ours. This is our life. There's one road we're walking down. We are no longer two separate individuals, but we are one united entity. The two become one. The the Hebrew word and the Greek word to hold fast is literally translated to be permanently glued or cemented together. So, God, from the very beginning, says, no, the two are to hold fast to one another, to be glued together, united together as, as one. This is a little, a little stand here, right? But really, there's three pieces of, of wood at the top, right? But, but there's just one tabletop. And if I were to try to take these apart... will will any of these pieces of wood return to their original form? No. They're they're enmeshed together. They're, They're glued together in such a way that the individuals are now one unit. There's no this one over here and this one over here. At that point, you cease to have the tabletop. And so this is the imagery that God is giving is that marriage is meant to be a covenant a promise, a commitment of two becoming one. A covenant says, I'm in this. I'm not going anywhere. Come what may, come hell or high water, we are doing this together. A marriage will not last on feelings. It will not last on what we're getting out of it. It will only last when the two people decide that they are staying together as one. Because I promise you, as great as your marriage is, and I'm sure it is, as great as it will be, and I'm sure it will be, there will come the seasons when you have to learn how to love the stranger that you're waking up next to. When a traumatic event occurs, and this is no longer the person you married. When your feelings and attractions are are waning, And there's someone at the office that's giving you more attention and making you feel like you once did with this spouse. A covenant decides and determines, no, no, we are one for the rest of life. Now, Jesus, he does give concessions for divorce. He tells us even in Matthew 19 that, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, that sexual immorality is an allowed reason for divorce. Why? Because with sexual immorality, one person has already broken covenants and walked away, has already separated from the combined oneness. Now, here's the beauty of the gospel, and I really believe this. I believe that anything on this world that is broken has the potential to be repaired by the power of the Holy Spirit and by two, by two people, or whatever situation it is, humbly coming together in honesty to work for what God has called us to. So I know, we know, marriage can get dark and hard. And we can sin against each other in ways that we never thought would ever, ever happen. But God By his power, it's the message of the gospel. He takes dead things and makes them alive. He takes broken things and puts them together. He takes the lost and they're found. He takes the blind and he gives them sight. The message of the gospel is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, anything can be overcome and reconciled. That includes marriages. And if it's not true, then the the whole thing's not true. So the gospel is real, and it gives hope to all situations. But again, it takes two coming in together in honest humility and repentance and saying, no, no, I confess, I repent, we restore, we move together. So Jesus says, look, if one is sexually immoral, they have broken the covenant, they have separated, and there is the freedom to go and to move on. There's also the freedom to pursue reconciliation. Another reason that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 7 is abandonment. You, you ultimately can't make someone stay, right? The, you, you can't force that. You can't make someone stay. And if they are not committed to you and to Christ and they walk away from you, Paul says, okay, you've got the freedom to grieve and to heal and to move on. In this, I would also put abuse, Abuse is a force of abandonment. They have abandoned the covenant of their marriage. They have have already broken that covenant and abandoned the sanctity of marriage. It's, It's okay to grieve and to heal and to let them go and to move on. Can God still overcome and reconcile? 1,000%. But he he doesn't in every situation. He allows us, at times, to move on. I know for for many in here, divorce is a part of your life. Either first-hand or second-hand, right? Can God not redeem that? Absolutely he can. Absolutely. You know, do we, do we just say, okay, well, God can redeem this, so it's okay, right? If I can get divorced, God's going to redeem that. Paul would say, no, 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 that's the wrong approach. If we think I can sin because the grace is greater, then, then we don't really know the grace of God. So we can't approach it and be like, oh, it's going to be okay because God's going to forgive me. He'd say, no, 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 that's you, ta- that's you taking advantage of the system, trying to take, that doesn't work. You haven't really experienced grace. But, but for those of us who have a past that we're like man, this doesn't fit in with God's design. You know what? That's all of us. Praise God that he forgives and redeems and restores and takes us where we are. He's looking for a humble and repentant heart today at this moment. God's design is a covenant. What's unique about a covenant between man and wife and and the covenant that God's design is is that our covenant is not just with one another. Our covenant's also with God. Right In verse 6, that's so what he says, right, at the end of verse six, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Right? When, when RJ and Haley stood up and, and, and gave their vows, I first asked them a series of questions. Do you promise this? Do you commit this? Do you, do you promise to be you know, true and faithful to love and sickness and health, all, all those things, right? And their answer was, I do. Th- that's a promise that they are making, not only to their spouse, they're making to God, and in the presence of friends who will hold them accountable. That, that, and then RJ turned and said, Haley, I choose you. I promise to you, right? So there's, there's both. There's that covenant being made to God. God, I promise to be true and faithful. I promise to stand by. I promise to endure. It's a covenant not made just between humans, but also with God. Now here's the, here's the thing, right? Remember how we said in the very beginning, our purpose exists. We are created, Genesis chapter 1, to reflect the image of God. If you're like, why am I here? Not just like here in this chair, but why do I exist? God created you to reflect him, that with everything you say and do and think and at every moment, we would be an image bearer, a representation of God's character and love and selflessness and in our relationships, we would reflect him, right? And so we talked about how God is a triune God and we use this triangle all the time. Sir, so I think we have the, the do, did, did I send that? Tell me, I didn't send it, it. I remember now. Okay, just imagine with me. Just imagine with me. It might be in there somewhere even, right? Do you see it? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Gosh, that's my fault, y'all, right? God is a triune God. We'll do it this way, right? Father, Son, Spirit, one God, All right, A triangle has three points, one triangle, right? So God is triune. He's communal, Father, Son, Spirit, when, okay, great, that's not, so you see the triangle part. I don't have the other one that I was going to show, but it's good enough, right? When husband and wife covenants with one another, but also with God, guess what we're creating? A triangle. Hot dog. Will you look at that? Right, that when we covenant together, and when, when Stephanie covenants with God, I will pr- I promise you God, when I covenant with God, I promise you God, when we covenant together, we are reflecting the triune God that are similar yet different, but united as one. I'm, I'm similar to Stephanie, yet we're different. She's similar to me, yet we're different, and we're united with God. We reflect God's unity in oneness. That's why God designed it to be a covenant and not just a consumeristic contract. Because our marriages remaining united is a picture of the unity of God, a reflection of who He is. God's design for marriage is a covenant, a promise commitment, a decision to remain as one. To pursue increasing oneness with one another. So why does God give us this marriage? One reason is to help one another become like Jesus. To help one another reflect the image of God. If we go back to Genesis 2 that Michael read from, the first time that God said something was not good was that man was alone. so what does God say next in verse 18? I will make a helper fit for him. I will make someone who can come help Adam become all that God created him to be. And vice versa then, Adam becomes her helper. Adam helps her become all that God created her to be. Right? God created us to need human interaction. To need the help of one another. Now, said this too, you don't have to be married to accomplish this. Right? We don't have to be married to help one another become like Jesus. In John 17, Jesus is praying for the disciples, for the church. He's praying for you and me. He, he says that, he starts by praying just for the disciples, and then in verse 20 he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe me through their word. Like Jesus was legit praying for, for us. In John 17, verse 20. For those who will at some point believe in him through the word of the apostles. That's us. That's us. And what's he praying for us? That we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity is an essential element of our faith. Because we are to reflect the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit. At no point does Jesus go rogue and do his own thing. At no point does the Spirit go off and do its own thing. At no point is the Father like i'm done with y'all, right they're forever united. Jesus is praying that we would be one, and he 's not talking about marriage here. we 're not all married together. He's talking about Christians united. Macy, what I thought I told y'all. The second time they set a timer for me. I said it better not go off. I ain't know what to do with y'all. Good night. So, so I, I, gotta, I gotta refocus. <laughs> Dang. So listen, listen, okay, okay. Single or Married. Jesus is praying that we would be one and reflect unity as God is one. Div- divisiveness, divisiveness, I don't know how to say it either way, right? Discord, disharmony, petty talking about behind our back, argue, all that nonsense, not reconciling and working together, it does not reflect the unity of God. It, it, it is one of the main reasons people outside the church are like, why do I want to be a part of the church? I go in and they don't love me, they don't love people, they don't love one another. What's the point of that? It poorly reflects God. And so in our marriage, in our covenant of oneness to reflect God, we are there to help one another become more like Jesus, to be all that God created us to be. Well, uh, Keller quotes a, a writer in his book th- that says, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and then with the breath of kindness blow the rest away. That's a beautiful quote. And, and he, Keller's actually quoting someone that's talking about Christian friendship. That in Christian friendship we should have the vulnerability and honesty and safety to be a work in progress to be a little messy, and to know that they will gently and kindly help us become more like Jesus. And in marriage, God's design is that we have the security and safe promise of someone who's going to take our mess and not go anywhere, who's covenanted and promised with us to be there through the refinement process and the sanctification process. That in marriage, we have a promise of a spouse that, that is more concerned with their future image of Jesus than the mess we are right now. And wants to walk with us, promises to walk with us to become all that God created us to be. So again, we can do that with our friends. We should do that with our friends. But, but friendships, they naturally come and go. You know, if I have to move away and go back home to take care of my parents, right? My my friends may not do that. My, My wife is, though. My spouse is. Because we've covenanted where you go, I go. Where you go through, I go through. Your mess is my mess. We have that safety and security of knowing this person is with me to help me become all that God created me to be. It's a gift. It's a beautiful gift. Husbands, is that your focus? Helping your wife become the beautiful daughter that God created her to be in him? Seeking her sanctification, her good? Wives, is that your focus for your husbands? Helping them become all that God created them to be. In a covenant, we have the promise of someone who will be there and will continually work towards that end with us. We also see the the promise of the purpose of the marriage covenant at the end of, of Paul's passage in Ephesians five, which is to tell the story of Christ's love for the church to be a living theater, a living picture of Christ's love for the church, right? Paul in Ephesians 5 that we read, he's talking about husbands and wives, and then he concludes it by going back to where? Genesis 2, the very beginning of God's design for marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, right? A covenant marriage. This Mystery, this mystery of male and female being united as one, of reflecting the the triune Father. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That the unity of husband and wife is meant to tell a story, and that story is the unity of Jesus and his church. It's meant to tell a story, and that story is the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. And then the love that his church, the bride, has for Jesus. What Paul is saying is that for marriages, that that husbands, you should know the love of God for you more because of the way that your wife loves you. And wives, you should know the love of God more because of the way that your husband loves you. And that when we are around people, they know the love of God more because of the way we love one another. That they understand how God speaks to his people because of the way they see us speak to one another. That they understand forgiveness because of the way we forgive one another. That they understand humility because of the way Jesus humbled himself for us. That our marriages are to be a living picture of the love of Jesus for us. It says in the New Testament that Jesus humbled himself. That he had every right to demand his own way. He is king. He is God. He's creator. And Jesus willingly, Philippians 2, let go of what was rightfully his in order to give to us what was not rightfully ours. That Jesus humbled himself to stoop below us so that he could lift us up where we don't deserve to be. And that us, husbands, wives, when we do that with our spouse, we are picturing the humility of Jesus who humbles himself to lift us up. It says that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus did not come to consume from us. Let's be honest, we had nothing to offer. Jesus came to give to us. Jesus didn't wake up every day wondering how we were going to treat him. Jesus woke up every day wondering how he could treat us. Jesus didn't get grumpy because the disciples didn't serve him. Jesus instead served them. Husbands and wives, when we choose to serve our spouse, regardless of if we are served back, we were reflecting the love of Jesus who served without expectation of return. It says that Jesus gave himself up. No one took his life, he freely gave it. 2 Corinthians 8 says we were the poor ones and Jesus, though he was rich, made himself poor so that we who were poor could become rich that Jesus literally laid his life down in order to lift ours up, that he gave himself up to the cross, that he laid his life, he, he set himself aside so that we could have what we could never earn on our own. And husbands and wives, when we lay our lives down for the good of our spouse, we reflect the love of Jesus. When we give ourselves up for them, we reflect the love Of Jesus. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus endured the cross. We can become weary of doing good. Jesus was tempted, He was tired, but He endured the cross. He endured the full process of serving. Husbands and wives, when we don't grow weary of doing good, we reflect the love of Jesus who endured on our behalf, who went the full distance for our forgiveness. And it says that it was his joy to serve us, to die for us, to give us life. Do we trust that God will provide the joy for us when we reflect the love of Jesus for our spouse. Because it's not always going to come from our spouse. It's not always going to come from recognition of others around us. Do we trust that God will be the provider of that joy? This is God's design for marriage. A covenant, a promise of oneness that reflects the image of Jesus. Jesus. To one another, to our kids, to the world around us. For his glory, out of reverence for him. To make his name beautiful. As we end, I just want to give a couple practical things of what we can do. To live this out. One, is to be filled by the Spirit. We cannot do this on our own strength. We won't make it. We just won't. But Jesus says in John 15, if we abide in him, that that he will give us what we need to accomplish and bear much fruit. That when we lean into him, he fills us up so that we're not expecting our, our spouse to give what they can't actually provide. Take care of your own spiritual lives. The best thing you can do for your spouse is to thrive in your relationship with Jesus, it's the best thing you can do for your spouse. Lean into him. Two, put on humility. Choose to put on humility. That's an intentional choice to posture yourself, to reframe your thinking from selfishness to selflessness. We're born with a default brain of selfishness. Work on reframing your mind to think of selflessness. And when you're selfish, own it, confess it, apologize, move on. It's going to happen move on. Put on humility. Choose it. Practice it. The beginning of Ephesians 5 tells us, and this is the third thing, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Agape love is an intentional choice. It's an intentional choice to think and do what is good, kind, and best for another. It's something we can grow in. We can get better at. We can learn. We can develop. Walk in love. Choose to put love as a practice in your life learn what your spouse how he or she receives love learn what makes him or her feel loved and do it choose to put in love fourth walk in the light first John says to be in the light as he is in the light there's nothing that will kill a marriage faster than hiding Genesis 3 the first time hiding entered the world was after sin hiding is of the devil Keep building or keeping secrets will, will destroy a marriage. It's impossible to have oneness when there's secrets in the mix. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Trusting the process of that. And fifth and finally, s- submit yourself to community. The reason we have marriage ceremonies with others is because we have friends and family who are walking with us to become all that God created us to be. Don't isolate yourself. Don't think you can figure this out on your own. Submit yourself to community. So this is God's design for marriage. It's not a consumer's contract. It's a covenant between man, woman, and God to pursue oneness for the rest of life. This is his design. And by his spirit, he's given us everything we need to live in it. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.